For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of worth. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. As you know, all this month, we've been celebrating the legacy, the life, the body of worth of Judy Garland. Today is a bittersweet day as we celebrate her life. We also take a moment to remember that today is the anniversary of her passing. And I want to begin today uh, by going back uh, and talking about this day in my life. Uh, I've often talked about this in my show, uh, my one-man show. Uh, I was living in South Carolina. Uh, I was an eight-year-old boy. Uh, and when I heard that Judy Garland had passed away, it was a Sunday afternoon. And uh, our cousins, um, my uncle Gilbert and Aunt Christine, and their six daughters were coming for dinner that night. And uh, as uh, my cousin Patsy got out of the car, the first thing she said was that Dorothy had died. And of course, I thought it was my aunt Dorothy. Uh, and uh, I questioned that. And of course, when she said that it was Judy Garland who had played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, I said, that's not possible. And of course, I ran to the TV and turned the TV on and started uh, changing the channels. In those days, there were only three channels, uh, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And I went from channel to channel to channel. And of course, I didn't see anything. But the next morning, I was at, uh, we had a, a lady, uh, Hazel Elvington, who took care of us uh, while my parents were at work. And we were at her house and I went in and I saw the newspaper headlines. And of course, there it was in black and white. And it was very upsetting uh, to see that. And I went home that night and I cried my eyes out and I threw myself on the floor. And as I was screaming that she was, uh, I, I said, I can't go on, I can't go on. My mother took me and she shook me and she said, you don't even know this woman. Why are you so upset? But I did know her because she was someone that was in our homes year after year after year with the annual showings of The Wizard of Oz. And my eight-year-old self uh, had this thought that I would never see The Wizard of Oz again because I thought with Judy's passing that that meant that everything that went with her was going to go with her including The Wizard of Oz. And of course, that's how a young kid's mind operates. Uh, but uh, she lives on. She lives on in her songs and in her movies. And this entire month, uh, I am reminded every single day that she's all around us with the Empire State Building being lit up in rainbow colors this month and seeing her all over the internet and all of the incredible people that I have had on this platform all this month and all the incredible people that I have met throughout this month as a result of this celebration of this incredible woman. And this, in just a few moments, you all are going to get a chance to meet, if you don't already know, uh, someone who happens to be a very dear friend of mine, and that's John Meyer. And John Meyer 
uh, had the pleasure, uh, the distinct pleasure of knowing Judy Garland intimately and personally. And he's written this incredible book, Heartbreaker. And we're going to talk about Judy, not only in their moments together, but in her legacy, her life, and as I've said, her body of worth. Before I bring John on, I want to begin today. Um, all this month, I have celebrated Judy by showing a montage of uh, Judy's songs. Uh, but today, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to start with one of John's songs. This is one of my favorite songs that John wrote for Judy Garland. And I thought that it would be an appropriate way to start the show today. Uh, it's all for you. And uh, here she is. And you'll meet John on the other side. Here she is. Ladies and gentlemen, what can you say? The great Judy Garland. <laughs>
Now, I will be bringing John on in just a moment. But before I bring him on, I want to share this incredible story on how John and I met. Uh, many years ago, uh, I had an incredible publicist by the name of Phyllis Raskin. I know that her and Judy are watching right now together, along with Dana Lorge. Well, we were at this holiday party uh, at Phyllis Raskin's, and I meet this incredible woman, Dana Lorge, for the first time. She was dressed flamboyantly, as she always was, and I just knew that she was an entertainer, although I'm meeting her for the first time. And I said, why don't you get up and sing? There was a man sitting at the piano singing. Uh, playing the piano. And uh, she said, well, what makes you think that I'm a singer? I said, you look like a singer. You have to be a singer. She said, well, I do very obscure songs. And I know he's not going to know anything that I know. And I said, well, go over and ask him. Maybe he knows something. So we walk over to the piano and uh, she's, he says, well, uh, what do you know? And she said, well, I do obscure songs. And he said, like what? She said, well, one of the songs I do is I'd like to hate myself in the morning. And he said, I wrote that song. <laughs> she said, sure you did. And he began to play it. And of course, John Meyer wrote that song. So that's how John and I met. John, I am thrilled that you were here. I am thrilled that you were here to share your memories of Judy uh, and to share our memories together as well. So thank you for being here today. I'm just glad that your eight-year-old fantasy of destroying the Wizard of Oz never happened. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell you, I was so distraught uh, when that happened. And my mom, my family, everyone, they still know that that was such a, uh, you know, it, it was such a sad moment for me. And until I saw that the Wizard of Oz would be returning that year, because, you know, I grew up at a time where the Wizard of Oz was only shown once a year. So you lived for that once a year uh, time for it to come. And our dear friend Judy Mark just popped in. So she says hello. Uh, we've got a lot of your friends here and a lot of my friends. So we're thrilled that they are here today. Uh, John, I began my shows by asking who or what are you celebrating? And we all celebrate Judy. Um, I want to ask... Um, what is it about Judy that you know about her? Uh, maybe that's not in the book or something that would surprise a lot of people about the essence of who she was beyond the legend and the myth of Judy Garland. Well, I noticed that you have quoted Hedda Lettuce <laughs> at the top of the screen who says that Judy's life was tragic, one of the great- No, guys. that was not Hedda Lettuce. Uh, that was Hedda, uh, uh, that was Luella Parsons who said oh, that. Oh, I thought it was Hedda, Hedda Hopper. All right. Anyway, uh, that seems to be the common conception, although on a day-to-day -day basis, Judy's life was a lot of fun and she didn't consider it tragic at all. She was always up for humor, and always telling anecdotes. There are a couple of anecdotes in this book that I just discovered, which I'll show you in a moment, uh, that she contradicted. And I can tell you what they are, and I will after we look at the book. Um, I had a moment of perception 
this week about how Judy performed. And it's obvious in several of her renditions, she inhabits the lyric. She gets inside the lyric. She's first of all, a wonderful actress, a terrific comedian, and without goes without saying a fabulous singer. But in a number, for instance, like uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which she did a few weeks after Kennedy's death and assassination, she not only sings the song, this four foot 11 lady practically becomes America mm -hmm. for us. And it's because, as I say, she inhabits the lyric as, it's as if the lyric is poured over her like maple syrup. You know, she's just inside it. You can hear it on a rendition like Do It Again, where she is so intimately associated with the words, especially that second chorus where I think uh, Roger Edens provided it, where she says, hold me tight all through the night. You get such a sense of intimacy with her that it's almost too painfully intimate. You can see her relaxing against the pillow with an after-sex cigarette, you know? Yes, yeah. It's uh, just well, wonderful. Anyway, these are the perceptions that comes to me now, like 55 years later. You have more questions? I'm no, sure. well, I, you know, I, each day I choose a word of the day. And the word I pick today is vulnerability because there's such a vulnerability in the way that she presented a lyric. And, and I'm so glad that you said what you said because I think she approached all of her singing from the words. The lyrics came first. And of course, she threw herself with such abandon into whatever she was singing that that she just embellished and you know it, it just surrounded herself in such a way that she became the song. When she says concentration, she said, I think my effect stems from my concentration. She's really talking about investing herself 200% in the lyric, really. Well, I wanna ask you as a songwriter, and you have had your songs sung by so many people. Mm -hmm. The first time that you hear one of your songs sung by Judy Garland, I mean, that is a songwriter's dream right there. What was that experience like for you? Well, it was unbelievable. I had arranged uh, a small club date for Judy at a place that I was playing called Three, run by one of Judy's old friends, Mary McCarty. And we were rehearsing on that afternoon for the date. And she said, would you teach me your song? And the song was, I'd like to hate myself in the morning. Well, I did teach it to her, never dreaming that she planned to do it that very evening. But she did. She said, and now I think we should do a show, uh, a song that Johnny's written. And she picked the typed lyric sheet off the piano and read it. And I was astounded. I was only sorry that I had to look at my fingers on the keyboard <laughs> rather than that 
<laughs> I watched the audience in their amazement at this new song. And the song, of course, fit her very well. It was insouciant and flip, and she liked nothing better. So I was knocked out. And I saw a new respect in Mary McCarty's eyes for me. I'm not just your weekend piano player anymore, am I, Mary? <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Uh, you, of course, talk about this in the book. And, you know, and I, everyone, the book is still available on Amazon. And it's a great, great book. And you've also uh, have dramatized this book uh, on stage. Um, uh, a couple of times, I mean, I think Judy Blazer, uh, Christine Andreas, uh, you've had great actresses uh, come in uh, to do, uh, you know, what are your ultimate plans? Do you think that this will uh, go the route of being a full-fledged show that bigger audiences will be able to see in the future? Well, I know that I would hope so. That's my plan. As we speak, I have a lady in California, doctor, <laughs> yes. Her name is Amanda Gary, and she is Brian Gary's sister and Eddie Cantor's granddaughter. Yes. And she took a liking to the book, and I sent her the script of the play with music, and she fell in love with it, and she has enlisted a lovely director named Kay Cole, who originated a role in, in the first chorus line. And the two of them are putting together a reading and after that reading, we will see where it goes. So well, I, I do I have to be there. Yeah. I, we don't want to give away too much. Again, we want people to read the book. But can you take us back uh, to when, where, and how you and Judy first met? You were 28 years old, or I should say 28 years young. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you meet the incredible Judy Garland. Uh, and... Uh, this relationship begins between the two of you? Well, she was very warm to me on our first meeting. In fact, she was in a sleeping loft. I couldn't see her, but as I came in the door, she threw down a pair of her pantyhose and they settled on the floor like the Wicked Witch of the West melting. I thought that was pretty indicative <laughs> of something. I wasn't sure how to verbalize it, but she came, came down the stairs wearing a little black dress and she took my hand and she wouldn't let it go. And then she started to tell stories and she was a marvelous raconteur as oh, everybody yes. knows. You know, and I broke up at some of the stories and I guess I told maybe a few of my own and then she said, but Richard tells me you're a wonderful songwriter. This is Richard Stryker, the fellow who introduced us. Yes. And I, she said, would you mind? And she gestured towards the piano. And I played I'd Like to Hate Myself in the Morning. And she was frankly entranced. In fact, she anticipated one of the lyrics. I had written, I'd like to wake at noon feeling guilty and wonder who I kissed and wonder who I missed. And she anticipated who I missed and sang it right out. Well, that knocked me out right then and there. And when Richard left the room, she came to me and mouthed this phrase. She said, I'm with you. I almost dropped my teeth on the floor. 
she said, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and we took hands and we left. And from that moment on, we were friends, later lovers, uh, later manager and performer, and always laughing. So that's basically. And you story. add to, you know, what Lorna and Joey and uh, Liza have said, She's, she, she never thought of herself uh, as a tragic figure. Right. That she she lived her life to the fullest. Right. She loved to do improvisations. When we were alone, she would do improvisations before we went to bed. She would say, all right, you be the professor. I'll be the student. And we would do an improvisation. I happened to be able to do James Mason. I had a friend named Will Jordan. You may remember. Oh, Will. yes. Ed Sullivan. Yeah, he did Ed Sullivan, and he did Jimmy Cackney and Edward G. Robinson, and one of his was James Mason. And I studied Will and began to copy his James Mason. And when I met Judy, I used to do James Mason all the time. I would say, every morning I take the mirror from the shelf, and I say to myself, who's the greatest star of all? And do you know what the mirror says? And she would say, Norman Maine. And I'd say, precisely. <laughs> and this would go on all day, you know. And you, I mean, th this relationship, I mean, you ended up, I mean, you were uh, together for not a long, long time. But a very um, intense time. But a very intense time. Uh, and you ended up getting the flu. Right. And that is on the wayside. Yes. And uh, something in that changed the trajectory of your relationship. Well, totally. She totally dropped me and went on to the next guy whose name was Mickey Deans. And uh, they went to London to perform in a club date that I had arranged, a club booking that lasted a month, in fact. And uh, then he was negligent, I think, and allowed her to die of an overdose. So I was not really friends with Mickey. We were quite competitive. I came to London to supervise a recording session in which he was going to do my tunes. That, was, that session never materialized. But Mickey kind of redeemed himself in a way because after I had left London and returned to New York, a few weeks later, he brought recordings of my song, Hate Myself, which she had been doing in her concert. And I had to give him points for that. So that's wow. part of the story. Wow. Um, where were you, John, when you heard that Judy had passed away? I was in my apartment, I say my apartment, it was actually my parents' apartment. And somebody called me on the phone about 10.30 in the morning. And they said, did you hear? And I said, no, what? They said, Judy died. And I was just frozen. I just stood there holding the phone until the person said, John, are you there? Are you there? And I hung up and uh, 
I don't even remember what I did, but it was devastating. And that's where I was. It was, I mean, I, I can't even imagine, you know, again, uh, the vulnerability that you were going through because it was not that long after the romance. That the romance. I mean, it was right on the heels of all of that happening. Yeah. Um, John, what was it that compelled you to want to tell your story in the book? I want to start with that. All right. Well, you know, I'm basically a playwright, a musical yes. playwright. The musical yes. theater is my love. I started as a lyricist. I developed a facility. Then I added music. And finally, I was able to write script. And because the adventure with Judy had been so dramatic, uh, I said, I've got to tell this story. Even though it had no music and lyrics in it, other than the standards of Harold Arlen's and Richard Rogers and Cole Porter's and a few of my own, I will say, um, that, that I sat down and I began to write. And I was lucky enough that Margaret Whiting, whom I was seeing later, knew an editor at Doubleday and she introduced me and I took the manuscript over and they published it in 1983. Mm -hmm. Then later, another friend of mine introduced me to yet another agent and because it was 2006, they decided to reissue the book because it could contain a CD of tunes that Judy and I had recorded together in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So that edition was published with a CD. And speaking of CDs, uh, have you, I'm sure you have, are cognizant of this that I produced this year? Which way do I go? Oh, uh, go there. Uh, just pull it up a little bit. Yeah. Wow. No, I didn't know about this. This is a CD of outtakes of the talk of a town, of phone calls with Harold Arlen, of phone calls also with the booker of the Merv Griffin show, and a bunch of tapes that I've been sitting on for 50 years. You know, when the book came out, Heartbreaker, some people uh, accused me of exploiting Judy's legend for my own profit. So well, I, you know, um, but I want to ask about that in just a moment uh, because I've got a question from one of our viewers, uh, Danielle, who's watching. Uh, Danielle is a dear friend of mine, and her question is: she would like to know if there's anything that you wish that you had not put in the book. Uh, are you proud? I mean, are you happy with everything in the book? And when the book came out for a second reissue, when the CD came out. Did you make any changes with the book? No. Uh, one of the things that Citadel, the publisher, uh, was happy about is that I was able to give them the original Doubleday plates, which they simply duplicated in there. All they had to do was print a cover mm -hmm. and add the CD. So it was really a very economical way uh, to revive the book. Now, so we have... That was Danielle's question. Uh, uh, that if there was anything that you uh, regret putting in the book. No, I wish I'd put, I wish I'd had more space oh. actually to put in uh, anecdotes that I withheld. My sense 
of drama as a dramatist concentrated on the forward narrative momentum of the story. And as you know, it's written in a diary form. And so I was able to progress the story day by day. And there was so much that happened on a day by day basis that uh, 200 odd pages was plenty to write. So I want to go back to something that you just said, because when you have your story to tell, and this is your story to tell, yep. it's your relationship with Judy Garland as you lived it, you breathed it, you experienced it. Um, and then there are people who feel that you are exploiting her. Yep. Uh, and of course, and I know you, John, that's not your intent. It's your intent to tell your story. Um, how do you deal with those people or do you not deal with those people? Uh, how, I mean, what was the response at the time that the book came out from a lot of people? And I'm sure it was coming at you from all angles. Yeah, well, I learned very early that when somebody criticizes you, you don't fight back. You simply nod and you say, I'm glad to hear your feeling about that. And then if it's a manuscript that they're criticizing, you take notes and you go home and you evaluate what they said, because some of what they said may be true. For instance, when Heartbreaker first came out, some of the criticism said, well, John was just as much an enabler of Judy with her drugs and her pills as anybody. And it's true, I was. She asked me to get her Ritalin. I tried to withhold it from her. She wouldn't allow it. And I then just had to go and get the Ritalin for her whenever she wanted. Um, and I realized that the Ritalin was more important to her than anything. And if I had continued to withhold and just dole out the pills in what I considered a reasonable dosage, that she would have left me and gone to someone like Mickey Deans for more. And I didn't want that to happen. So I relinquished the bottle. That's the first scene in the, uh, the musicalization mm -hmm. where they have a fight over who gets to control the pill bottles. Well, you know, I, I grew up um, in an alcoholic household. So oh. when you're living in that kind of an environment, um, you know, and I, as a kid, I used to hide the, my father's, um, oh. I would hide the alcohol and no matter how they find a way of getting it. Yeah. You know, um, and it's, it's a, when, unless someone goes through that kind of an experience, um, it's, you know, and it took me years before I would even talk about it because it was such a painful experience to go through. Yeah. Um, as you were starting to put these words on paper, uh, did you keep journals? I know that you're a writer. You're, you, I mean, you come from the theater, you're a writer as a songwriter and as a dramaturg. Uh, but did you also keep journals at this time? I did. I took notes on the most dramatic incidents that happened. There was a fight in Boston about the fact that she wouldn't let me get any sleep where she actually turns it around 
And she says, oh, so it's all my fault. Again, it's my fault. And she does a self-pitying monologue. And then she runs into the kitchen and grabs a kitchen knife and pretends to slice her wrists, right? I mean, after that was over, I just grabbed the pad and the pen and I wrote down the highlights of that encounter because it was so dramatic that I, I couldn't not notate it. And then I was glad I had the notes to refer to. But John, as I said in my introduction, you know, as a small child, uh, the the pain that I felt, uh, having uh, felt that I had lost Judy and Dorothy, don't you feel that a lot of people feel a possessive quality towards Judy? Oh, and, you know, yeah, and because, you know, when you want to tell your story, um, that there are people out there who are going to form opinions about who you are um, based on their own personal feelings about her that right. are not based on the reality of what you're going through. Right. Well, now, this is sound grandiose, but in a way, I'm terrifically proud of myself for telling the truth the way it happened. Judy was a delight and infuriating at the same time. I could not withhold the downside of Judy, like for instance, her suicide attempts, her manipulations. Uh, she made people give her things just to prove she could. She asked a lady for her eyeglasses, her oh. eyeglasses for God's sake, and said, oh, these are very close, close to my prescription. Do you mind if I keep these? Just to see if she could get away with it. I, I know, I love that. but that story is, I mean, that story just, I, I mean, it, there was something humorous about that in the book. Yeah, that. see, it's humorous and breathtakingly manipulative at the same time. And I had to notate it as it happened and as it was with my perception of it. Can you imagine, I say, she asked a lady to give her her eyeglasses. But I was having a conversation with someone last week who knew Judy very well and said basically the same thing that you just said uh, about that side of her uh, in terms of how she, she knew how to play different sides of different people. Oh, yeah. And she knew how to really... You know, and this is not to take away from who she was as an artist uh, in any way whatsoever, because the brilliant, uh, she was brilliant as an artist. And anyone who knows me, I've devoted a month uh, to this and I would, I could devote six or 12 months to her and still not cover uh, the depth of her. When I think of what she was able to bring to us in 47 years, it blows my mind. Yeah. Incredible. And um, then you think of her uh, in Judgment at Nuremberg, where she doesn't even sing. She's just a brilliant actress. Just a brilliant actress. Uh, when, when, you, when did you know that the book was ready for the publisher, or did you have an editor who said, okay, John, it's ready? Uh, I just presented it to the editor at Doubleday. She read the manuscript and she had one or two suggestions. She didn't want me to call Mickey Dean's gay, for example. 
Uh, so I adjusted that. And uh, otherwise, she published the manuscript as I gave it to her. What was, yeah. the one, what was the one thing that you learned about yourself from writing the book that you had not really thought about as you were living this experience and that you were also writing about it? And have you gone back and read the book since you wrote, first wrote it? About 56 times. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, and what is significant about my rereading this book, I skip the parts where I'm weak, you know? I concentrate on where I'm in control. And that's one of the lessons I learned. I was able to stand up for Judy as I had never stood up for myself because she had public acceptance and I didn't. So I could fight for her where I could not fight for myself. And I think that's the most uh, significant lesson I, that I learned. Even now I can't put it into practice totally, but more so, yes. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Now you also have, I mean, beyond this, I mean, you have, you've written uh, works of fiction uh, where Judy is involved. Yes. Uh, I mean, you uh, have, uh, I mean, you, you have devoted a large portion of your life uh, to celebrating her and keeping her memory alive, right. uh, you know, and uh, in, and, but presenting her as you knew her. Uh, and again, we talked about these sides of Judy that you knew so intimately. Um, and your parents knew her as well. Um, what was your, I want to talk about your parents and their response to all of this going on, because I yeah, love, was amazing. I, I, was love your, the, I can only imagine your parents coming down that morning and seeing Judy in the house there. Right. Exactly. And my mother said, oh, don't let her see me. I don't have my makeup on. <laughs> and Judy came in. And Marjorie, my mother, tried to hide. She said, no, no, don't, I don't really look this way. <laughs> um, my mother was thrilled. My father got competitive. Isn't that interesting? He was the star of his own household. But of course, with Judy in the room, she was the star. And he felt kind of betrayed by that. Also, she refused to eat his food. My father was a very good amateur chef and food was his life. And he put a bowl of lentil soup before her and she would start to eat and then she would get deflected by a thought. She didn't like people to see her eating. That's one thing I learned about Judy. She didn't think she looked pretty when she ate. So she would start to eat and then deflect the spoon. And my father took it as a personal insult but she didn't like the lentil soup. <laughs> oh, well. well, John, you bring up an interesting point because there is a scene in the in the Renee Zellweger film of Judy where she's eating the cake and and regardless of what people may think about the film itself, uh I quite frankly think Renee Zellweger does a remarkable job 
uh, in the film in uh, certain scenes. And that particular scene where she's eating um, is such a, a touching scene to me uh, in the vulnerability of Judy and her being seen eating. And I think that is an interesting point that you bring up. Um, I'm going to ask you a two-part question based on that. You've cast different actresses to play Judy. And since you knew Judy so well, what do you look for in an actress to come in to play Judy Garland when you were casting them in your in your own production of Heartbreaker? Well, in casting Judy, you have to look for an appeal. Judy Blazer had a wonderful, wonderful appeal, and she looked almost exactly like Judy. So did Christine Andreas, who was a marvelous actress. I had always thought of her as only a singer. I didn't know her beyond her appearance with Richard Chamberlain in My Fair Lady. Uh, but she turned out to be a stunning actress and was able to capture all the nuances of Judy. Um, I thought in the many TV versions and film versions that we've seen that Judy Davis did a sensational job, you know. So one just looks for an approximation of her appeal coupled with the ability to be funny and to sing well. And of course, I mean, most recently we've got Renee Zellweger's uh, portrayal on film. Uh, and I'm all about celebrating. So if we're not going to celebrate her, um, do you think that that film captured the last uh, part of Judy's life? Frankly, no, I don't. However, I'm grateful to the film because it will bring Judy's image into the consciousness of other generations. Mm -hmm. I heard an anecdote the other day, maybe it was on your show, where somebody confessed that a young person didn't know who Judy Garland was, and he had to say, She's Liza Minnelli's mother. No, uh, it was Seth Sykes. I saw uh, he uh, was on the Today Show talking uh -huh. about, he was uh, appearing uh, recently at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below. And I saw that interview and he's, I saw that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting. Um, people like Michael Feinstein are bringing a consciousness of the great American standards to uh, the perception of younger people. And in fact, I think he's going to do his own tribute to Judy. And he is going to sing the song with which I hope to close the program, if you'll allow me. Well, um, I've, I've got some questions that I uh, am going to uh, do as a, uh, as a wrap up. Do you want to uh, close the show with the song or do you want to do that now? What do you think is more effective? Why don't you do it now? And then I will do my wrap-up questions, and because we're going to give Judy the final word today with uh, with uh, one of her songs. So uh, this is the song that you wrote right after she passed away. Leaving the Frank Campbell funeral chapel, I was so moved that I ran back to the apartment, and I wrote this song. It's called "When Do the Words Come True." 
and it's one possible estimate of the way Judy would view her own life and career from wherever she happened to be. I did have a piano version, which I was unable to send to you. So I'm just going to sing it a cappella. That's fine. See how you like it. Yes. <clears throat> it's called When Do the Words Come True? All my life, I've sung for my supper, poured out the feeling, entered on cue. Songs are made out of lyrics and music. When do the words come true? All my life is searching and reaching, singing of sunshine, stars in the blue, endless nights dreaming of rainbows. When do the words come true? All those words, tears, laughter, ever after, deep as the sea. All those words for other people, never for me. All these songs I've sung with conviction, really dug deeply, I gave them their due. Songs, it's time you finally repaid me. When do the words come true? All my life is standing backstage there, mouthing the lyric, running it through. You have heard the nights of my heartbreak. When do the words come true? All my life is breathing and phrasing, technically striving, learning to do. I can make you stand up and cheer me. Still the words don't come true. Writers give me lyrics revealing, depths of feeling so very strong. What you hear is not the singer, just the song. All my life, whatever its value, my songs were honest. This much you knew. Don't I get just one tiny token, one shining hour, one little windfall? When do the words, when do the words come true? Beautiful. Wow. Thank you. And I think Michael Feinstein is going to be singing that in his next concert. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, Debbie Weilman is going to do it soon. Do you know her work? I am seeing her on Sunday night in Provincetown. Oh, so, great. Yes, I'm going to see wait. her right Saturday night. Oh, yeah. you are? At uh, in Zankel Hall. Oh, that's wonderful. That's yeah. great. She's that's very great. funny, and I'm sure she will be very touching. Oh. She already does a song of mine, two of them, after the holidays, which Judy introduced on the Carson Show, mm -hmm. and Hate Myself in the Morning, which Judy introduced on the Merv Griffin Show, with a wonderful orchestration, by the way, by Mort Lindsay. Mort Lindsay. Her conductor for many years. Oh, it's amazing. Well, we're going to give away uh, a copy of your book. I will take care of that. And uh, the word of the day is vulnerability. 
And uh, I've got some uh, wrap-up questions that I want to ask you. And um, and the first question is, you know, we've been celebrating Judy all this month. Uh, TCM has been showing her films. Has there been a film that you've gone back and watched this month again that gave you a greater appreciation looking at it again with renewed eyes this month? Yes, I watched Star is Born this month, which is probably her masterpiece. Yeah. <clears throat> and strangely enough, the performance that brought me to tears was James Mason's. He is so expert and so wonderful. He doesn't pull any punches and he gets an original take on the character that's just fabulous. And I was in tears of emotion watching him. There's a moment just before he says, I need a job, where he takes four or five little steps along the stage, just thinking, and it's superb. It brings you into his character. And it's something he just thought of on the spur of the moment, you could tell. Anyway, so the star is born, yes. It gets me every time in that moment where he is lying in bed and he oh. hears her tell Oliver Niles that he, she's leaving the business to take right. care of him. That gets me so deeply, um, you know, because I know the pain of what my father went through. And that is his, that performance alone, he should have gotten an Oscar for that. Yes, so, I think so too. So I ordered a copy of Lolita just to watch that again. Well, oh, also brilliant. Everything he does. Uh, so my next question is: um, Do you consider yourself stubborn or lazy? <laughs> <laughs> can I be both? You can be both. <laughs> You've earned it. <laughs> I'm very stubborn in some instances. Uh, I don't. I don't consider myself lazy. Right now, I'm preparing another project, a play that I would like to shoot as a short film. Uh, it's about how Franz Kafka uh, befriended a little girl who had lost her doll. has nothing to do with Judy, but it has the same emotional resident, resonance. And so I'm never lazy. I've always got a project going. Incredible. Uh, John, what is the one thing about, uh, since your book has come out, what is the one thing about this book being out there in the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, out in the world, yeah. uh, and the response that you've gotten that has made you the angriest and the proudest? Well, let me take the proudest first. No, let me say... I'll reverse that. I'll go, what may be the angriest? Um, I guess some of the reviews that accused me of exploiting Judy. Uh, some of them said he's just using her to get his songs around. And that infuriated me because it was so far from the truth. Mm -hmm. I was actually totally invested in trying to rescue Judy a ridiculous mission, as anyone will tell you, but certainly not exploitative. Um, so I guess that made me angry and proud. One of the fans 
said in print on one of the websites, it's really the best book about Judy. It's certainly the most intimate book about Judy. Mm -hmm. It only covers eight weeks, but in those eight weeks, you can get a sense of her character. And it doesn't, it in no way tries to approximate the arc of her career. Although there are many anecdotes told about it. I should tell you one, which she said about the pirate. The pirate was written by eight different teams of writers, one of whom was Anita Luce and a partner. And she said that Anita Luce came to Cole Porter's house on a Sunday afternoon to read her draft of the pirate. And in her draft, she had made Sarah Finn not a pirate at all, but a fisherman. And his name wasn't even Seraphim, it was Gomez or something like that. And she says, when Gomez sees Manuela for the first time, he drops his nuts, uh, his nets. <laughs> <laughs> well, in show business, anything is possible. That's um, right. And she said everybody kept a very straight face, although she was breaking up inside. Oh, I can imagine her. Yeah. Um, John, I, you know, and those who watch the show know this. I, I have um, a calendar I keep on my desk uh, of daily affirmations. And I'm actually going to do two affirmations from my calendar. And the first affirmation, it says, I have coping skills for anticipatory stress. The months, weeks, days, or hours leading up to an event can be more stressful than the event itself. When you're getting stressed about an event that's coming up, and uh, and I will tell everybody, God bless you. God bless Glenn Charlo, who's watching, because you had a lot of trouble getting on here. Yep, yep. Uh, Glenn helped you last night. You went to a computer store today to figure out what the issues were that were preventing us from you from hearing me from hearing you this morning. But you got here and you made every effort to be here to do this show today, which means a lot to me. So thank you for that. You're but welcome. when you're dealing with these stressful situations, how do you deal with the stress to get you through it? I disregard it. I disregard the stress and bury it. And then after the event is over, I collapse. A lot of people I think do this. Well, so I do it in battle, you know? I hope you don't uh, stress. Uh, I don't. I hope you don't collapse later. And if you do, I hope it's a, a collapse of a you know good feeling. Yeah, I think I'll just lie down and have a glass of wine. That sounds good to me. Tough to do when you're lying down, but I'll what manage was, it. What was the single best piece of advice that you ever got from Judy? From Judy. I, she said, did you memorize the entire script of Star is Born? This is after <laughs> I quoted James Mason's rather long uh, speech. I said, yes, uh, but not for you. It was for Harold Arlen's songs. I wanted to know how to write like, I wanted to learn how to write like Harold Arlen. Wow. He said, you'll learn to write like John Meyer. Don't ever be a copy of anybody else. 
That's what she always said. Always be a first-rate version of yourself. Right. God bless her. Great advice. What is the one person that you have not worked with in this business that you would love to work with? In the business? Mm -hmm. Maybe that you like to write for. And someone's asked, and I want to get this because I don't want this to get by. We're talking about Judy today. But another great singer that I've had the great pleasure of seeing in concert, and I've heard her sing your song, and that's Shirley Bassey. What do you think of Shirley Bassey's version of your song? Well, I love it. I think it's wonderful. It's totally different yes. from Judy's. And uh, actually, she puts in a rather disturbing beat <laughs> in the middle of a phrase. Yes. I once heard a singer separate the words orange and juice <laughs> and singing it never entered my mind. And order orange <laughs> juice for one. Yes. <laughs> so um, I love Shirley, and she does a stunning rendition of it. Totally different from Judy's. Yeah, um, I know it's another subject, but I, I went to see her at Carnegie Hall, and she she opened the show with Goldfinger. And I thought, you know, her most famous song, who opens a show with a song yeah. that she's so well known for? And every song that she did topped the preceding song. And the entire show was like this. And it was standing ovation after standing ovation after standing ovation. I've never seen anyone else do that. Right. Just amazing. Um, and, uh, well, Danielle wants to know if you've ever written a song for me, uh, but no, I used when Dan, uh, when Dan, uh, Dana Lorge and I were performing together, we used to end our show every week with, I'd love to hate myself in the morning and singing. And I've got, thank you, John. I've got my own autographed copy of that song, which oh. is one of my prized possessions. So, um, so thank you. And thank you, Daniel, for the question. Uh, another from my calendar just admitting that something is a challenge in my life often makes it easier to sit with emotionally. Out of everything that you've written, was there one particular piece that was a true challenge for you? Yes, it's called The Betrayal of Nora Blake. It's a film noir musical that we got to do in London. And I had to do, first of all, the script and then the music and lyrics. I didn't even want to give myself that much of a challenge. I wanted somebody else to write the music. I went to eight different people, including Charles Strauss, Bert Backrack, a bunch of well-known composers. None of them wanted to do it. I wound up doing it myself. The challenge was to make the music as good as the script and lyrics. But well, I, I will say I saw it and you did a phenomenal job. Yeah. It may have been a challenge, but I loved it. Um, what is the highest value out of everything that you've achieved? Is there one thing that you are the proudest of? Well, I think having Judy sing my songs is certainly going to be my epitaph, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm amazed that I got to write the, for the four songs uh, before I was 30. You know, I'm proudest of those. 
and I'm proud of the score for Nora Blake. Was that your question? What am I proudest of? The proudest that you're the proudest of. Yeah. And I'm proudest also of, of seeing the Judy adventure through and that she was basically the one to say goodbye. I think that's good. I would not like to have had it be me. <clears throat> wow. John, this is going to be my last question. And um, and this is a loaded question with what we've gone through to get you here today. How has social media changed your life? <laughs> oh, well, let's just take Facebook, for example. Facebook presents me with different options every day. I get 10 or 20 notifications. I'm friends with a book writer named Sherman Yellen. Yes. He wrote The Rothschilds and a bunch of other shows. And he's always got something provocative to say. And I enjoy bantering with him and reacting to his posts. Of course, email. Email has changed the world. Um, and Zoom. I'm not sure I'm totally fond of Zoom because I like the idea of telephone calls where nobody can see you uh, in all undressed and everything, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I'm with you on that. I, I'm just very lucky that I came to it in my 60s when I still had enough intelligence to assimilate it correctly. Even now, I'm only quasi-literate on the computer. Wow. Well, John, don't go anywhere for a moment. We're going to give away a copy of your book, and I'm going to uh, do this. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, this is how we do this. I love seeing everybody's names pop up here. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, and I'm going to say, um, Carly Alec, thank you for being here. Um, write this down. Richard at richardskipper.com. Send me an email. Again, richard at richardskipper.com. And I will get your mailing address and I will make sure that you get a copy of John's book and you're going to love it. Um, I'm going to remove this here and I'm going to say a few words. And then John, I'm going to give you uh, a chance to have your final word. And then we will leave with another Judy Garland song today. Uh, so I just want to pull this up here. I want to thank everybody for being here today. Uh, it means the world to me uh, that you all uh, chose to be here on this very special day uh, as we celebrate Judy. Uh, I will not be doing a show tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow is going to be a day for me to take a deep breath and put my newsletter together uh, for next week uh, because I'm going to take a much needed vacation. Uh, I've been doing show after show after show, I need to get away for a little bit. So I'm going to Provincetown and I'm going to see Debbie Wildman. Uh, she's the main reason that I chose to take uh, this particular week to go away. Uh, so I want to thank you all uh, for being here. Even if you have left a comment here after the show today, please go to YouTube and leave a comment there. Uh, let John and I know what you think of today's show. Uh, please share this with your friends, spread the word around. Uh, John said something earlier uh, that he still appreciates those phone calls. And those of you who watch the show, you know that I do too. So after the show, 
please go to your Facebook friends list and reach out to the seventh person that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Uh, not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. It's also a good chance to tell them about this show. Let them know what you think about the show. You can also, if you're so inclined and you can afford to do so, order two copies of this book. <laughs> order one copy for yourself and send one to that seventh friend and say, I think this is a good book that you will enjoy. And while you're waiting for the book to arrive, go and watch the interview. Uh, my dear friend, Sean Moniger says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And I, you never know what someone else is going through right now. And I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, uh, make sure you bring a skipper along. Oh. So, uh, John, I'm going to leave the screen and I'm going to give you a chance now uh, to have your final word. And when you say goodbye, Judy will begin to sing. Uh, so, John, thank you for being here. I will tell you something, John. I'm a lucky man to have you in my life. So thank you so much for being here and for being a friend more than anything else. So, uh, John, it's all yours, and you've got the final word. Thank you. Well, thank you, Richard. That's a lovely thing to say. And I understand seeing you again up close why your show is one of the most popular going. You are such an intelligent uh, quiz master, and your questions, as pointed as they are, always result in an interesting response from the guest or the recipient. So I am thrilled to have had this chance to unload <laughs> all my thoughts about Judy at this particular moment, 50 years after her death, to reevaluate her legend, my state of mind, and my friendship with you. So I wish you a wonderful vacation, and a sweet goodbye. The end. Dear, when you smiled at me, I heard a melody. It haunted me from the start. Something inside of me symphony sing with the strings of my heart was like a breath of spring I heard a robin sing about a nest set apart all nature seemed to be in perfect harmony sing with the strings of my your eyes made sky seem blue again What else could I do again But keep repeating Through and through I love you, love I still recall the thrill I guess I always will I hope we'll never depart dear, with your lips to mine divine Sing when the strings of my heart 
night sky seemed blue again. What else could I do again? But keep repeating through and through, I love you, love you. I still recall a thrill. I guess I always will. I hope to never depart. 